0: The Old Testament reading is from Deuteronomy 32. Sometimes God lets us keep all of our false idols until they fall away and we can recognize them as useless. And at that point, which typically is where you're bottomed out, it's typically where you've reached the sort of the nadir of your depression. That's the point where he comes in and says, okay, now you see that I'm the only true God. That's something similar to what's going on in Deuteronomy 32. The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. And then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Philippians 2.5-11 is the epistle reading. It's also the sermon text for this morning. And most of you will recognize this when we get into it. It's just really, really good, rich theology. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 12th chapter. Glory to You, O Lord. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. Praise to you, O Christ. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Uh, This is, uh, so like I said, I'm guessing a lot of you uh, remembered this, uh, have heard this before. It's just really, really good theology, right? I mean, it's really rich. It's probably, in Paul, it's probably uh, the most Christology that he does, like in a small chunk, where he just unpacks. Who Jesus is, the person of Jesus. But, it's, it's, if, when we look at this, what you're, what you're gonna see is that this isn't, the way that Paul does this is he doesn't like list bullet point style. Here's my favorite five facts about Jesus. Paul hardly is ever interested in theology just to do theology. Paul is in, a, I feel like I say this a lot, so forgive me, this is another commercial for narrative. Paul tells a story here. This is what he does is think about what he does here in Philippians 2, 5-11. He tells the story of Jesus, and he begins before the creation of the world, who Jesus was from, from eternity, and he moves through the story of Jesus' life to who Jesus will be in eternity future. So basically, he does narrative. So again, my commercial for, like, story being the real deal. So here's what I'm saying, is a lot of times you grow up in, You grow up in church and you go to Sunday school and we think of like Bible stories as sort of the rough material out of which theology springs. Like as though stories in the Bible are like ore and you have to kind of dig around in the stories and find the little gold nuggets of theology. No, actually the story is the theology. The drama is the doctrine. The Bible doesn't come to us as theology textbook. It comes to us as story, and it claims to be the story of everything. And That's where the doctrine's at. It's always in the story. And it's never less than the story. It's never more than the story. It always is the story. So let's look at the story of Jesus as Paul sums it up in uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It doesn't come out in the, w- the way that it's printed in the bulletin. is sort of prosaic. It's actually a poem. It's got like a, a rhythm to it. It's got a meter to it. And let's start at verse 6. Who, the, this is the first thing we need to know about Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So, like I said, this starts off with Jesus, eternity past. He was in the form of God. And that word form there, what does that word form mean? It means, it literally means like category. It doesn't mean that he was in the shape of God. God doesn't have a shape. God is a spirit. It means that Jesus from eternity past was in the same exact category as God. You know, you, we, we all in our minds, we categorize stuff. You organize things. I mean, you, you can tell the difference between a human and a cat, right? You have these two different categories in your mind, human and cat. You can tell the difference between a chair and a baseball bat. Even though lots of baseball bats look different, and there's lots of different types of chairs, you're able to categorize these things in your mind because they belong in certain categories. Jesus has, from eternity past, belonged in the category of God. He is divine, but in spite of that fact, in spite that he was the holder of all authority, of all glory, of all power, that he was the one who created the whole universe, he didn't think that that glory was something that he needed to grasp at. You know, grasp that last line in verse six. There did not he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think about somebody who's like slipping off of a cliff. And they're reaching out and they're grabbing for anything that they can find to hold on to because they just don't want to fall. That's the image of Jesus here. He didn't think that like, even though he was God, he didn't think that he had to hold on Do not let that go. Above all things, Jesus is saying to himself, I must not lose my glory. I must not lose my almighty status as the one before whom everybody is going to bow and pay homage. He didn't, God, but didn't feel like he needed to hold on to that. Because, I mean, that's the next chapter in the story, right? Verse 7, he made himself nothing. Uh, literally in Greek, he emptied himself. He, he gave up that glory. He gave up the divine prerogative to be worshipped eternally by everybody. He gave that up temporarily and took upon himself the form of a servant. Now that word form there is the exact same word as in verse 6. He was in the form of God from eternity. Jesus is in the category of God. But in verse seven, he makes himself nothing and takes upon himself the category of servant, being born in the likeness of men. So from this point on, Jesus is both God and man. He is from eternity to God. There is a point at time at which he becomes a man. It's Christmas morning, right? When, or Christmas evening, whenever it was. He becomes human being. He takes upon himself flesh. He will remain forever, both God and human. He's, he is in essence in the category of God. But he is also now in the category. He's in the form of a servant, he's in the form of man. Verse 8. And being found in fashion, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So not only does he give up his divine prerogative for glory and become a human, but also as a human, he becomes obedient to death. What does it mean for Jesus to become obedient to death? What it means is that he's obedient to this plan which the Trinity has had from eternity past, that God is going to become a human and die in order to rescue his own creation. In order to do away with death, he's going to allow himself to be overtaken by death so that he can swallow it up. Jesus is obedient to this plan. We know from the gospel story that there's lots of moments where Jesus thinks, I I wish I could get out of this. Like, I I don't want to go through this. However, Father, if it's your will, I'll do it, he says in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is ultimately obedient to this plan, which he, Father, and Holy Spirit have had from, from eternity past, that they would die, that he would die in order to take upon himself the sins of the world. Therefore, verse 9, that's the, that's, so here's the chapter so far. Eternity past, he's in the category of God. His incarnation, he takes upon himself the category of human. So, chapter 3 here, so that he could take on death for us. So that the thing that you fear most, the death of yourself, the death of your loved ones, God himself has experienced now. Chapter 4, though, because of that, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God has highly exalted Jesus. He has his glory back. He has his divine prerogatives back. He has, at his, he, had, he has at his feet all nations, tribes, tongues, confessing that he's Lord. Not in spite of the fact that he was a servant, but catch that word, therefore, there in verse 9. The therefore means that because he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Because of that, God has highly exalted him. What he receives because of his humility Is this name that's above all name? Is the confession by all creation that he is Lord? We'll come back to that later in a few minutes. Verse 10. So actually, we should talk about too at the end of verse 9. What is the name that's above every name? The name that's above every name, we're going to read it here in in verse 11. It's that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name that he's given that's above all names is the name of Lord. And we should talk about what that word means. Lord. When you confess that Jesus is Lord at this time, when Paul writes here that Jesus is Lord, he means a couple of different things. And I mentioned to you this. I mentioned this to you last week, so I'll bring it up again. At any point in Paul's life, Jesus's life as well, to confess that Jesus is Lord is a confession that Caesar is not Lord. If you ask any Roman citizen, You walk down the streets of of, of any town in Rome and you say, who is Lord? It's an easy call. Everybody says Caesar is Lord. And I mentioned this to you last week or I said it in an adult Bible study. I actually don't remember where I said it. I said it somewhere. So some of you are going to hear it again. Uh, Roman citizens required once a year to go to a temple built to Caesar. Either if you were living in Judea, either in Caesarea Philippi in the north or Caesarea Maritime by the sea, You would go to a temple that actually Herod had built the temples in that city to his friend Augustus. You would walk into that temple. You would burn incense, and you would say out loud the confession, Caesar is Lord. You'd be good to go for one year. You were a loyal citizen of the Roman Empire. You would receive a card that said, Joe has confessed that Caesar is Lord this year, and he's good for another year. And if anybody had any questions about your loyalty to the empire, you had your card to show them, which you would have to renew the next year. Christians uh, Christians debated in the first century whether this was legitimate to do, whether you should do it out of respect for the authorities and in your own mind keep back the confession. You could say, well, Caesar's kind of Lord. He's kind of an earthly Lord, but Jesus is a real Lord. But not say it out loud. Many Christians said, no, you can't confess that Caesar's Lord because of this, because right now and in the future, Every knee of those who believe this and ultimately every knee of every human creature ever will someday bow and every mouth will confess that Jesus is Lord. Caesar's not Lord. There's no power in this earth. There's no idol that you can have that can, we try to invest them with the authority of Lord, but there's actually no idol that can actually reach that sort of status. Only Jesus is Lord. But here's the second thing you would have meant. Here's the second thing Paul means when he says that Jesus has been given the name above every name. And at his knee, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Here's the second thing he means. If you are a Jew, or if you're a Gentile Christian who's been reading your Old Testament, you will know that Lord is code word for Creator God. You don't say Yahweh's name out loud, you say Lord instead. And to say that somebody is Lord, that's actually there's a way that you can talk about that in, in, in Greek. You can say Lord, and it can be sort of an equivalent of mister. You can call your landlord Lord. That's also fine. But to say somebody is Lord, and what you mean is somebody has all power, that's language you should only use for Yahweh, the creator God. It's incredibly offensive to use that. This is one of the reasons, main reasons, to blend number one and number two here. This is one of the main reasons why you don't call Caesar Lord. Because Caesar doesn't just mean, you know, I'm your uh, friendly politician right now. Caesar means I'm the master of the universe. Caesar means I am the son of God, which is one of the titles he called himself. Caesar means that he is savior, which is another one of the titles he called himself. Tar- Caesar wants you to believe that he's Lord. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to say that no, Caesar's not Lord. That Jesus is Lord, but you're also saying something else about Jesus. You're equating him with Yahweh. This is super explicit too because actually Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 45 here. Let me read Isaiah 45 to you. Not the whole thing, but just the relevant verses. Verses 22 through 24. Paul says that, or Isaiah says this. When Isaiah is writing, he's actually quoting Yahweh himself. Turn to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. So Yahweh is telling the earth, everybody in the world, turn to me and be saved. Here's what he says. Because before me, Every knee will bow, and by me, Yahweh says in Isaiah 45, by me every tongue will confess, and they will say of me, in the Lord alone is salvation and strength. Paul pulls that quote about Yahweh, the creator God, the one who existed in the pillar of fire and smoke in the tabernacle in the temple, the one who parted the Red Sea, the one who stood at the creation of the world and by the word of his mouth made all things exist. Paul says, actually, you know who that was in Genesis 1? You know who that was in the birth in Exodus 3 who told Moses from now on call me Yahweh? Do you know who that was who announced in Isaiah 45, only by me can the ends of the world be saved, because by me every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You know who that actually was, Paul is saying here? That was Jesus. To confess that Jesus is Lord is is a confession that Jesus is the eternal God is to confess that Jesus has that power which he was willing to give up, that glory which he was willing to abandon to rescue us. But by because He, re- but by rescuing us, because he rescued us, he gets that glory and that exaltation back. Okay, that's Jesus in Isaiah 2, 5 through 11. Starts at the beginning, his preexistence. It goes through his earthly life and ministry, the death, the resurrection. It goes through eternity future, where everybody in the whole creation will be confessing that he's Lord. This is really good doctrine. You should know this sort of stuff. This is the sort of stuff that we want our kids to learn in confirmation class, right? But it's not just doctrine, like I said earlier. It's not just doctrine for doctrine's sake. Like going through confirmation class and knowing what the Bible teaches about facts about Jesus is actually not good enough. You can't abandon it. You need to believe that Jesus is Lord. But just thinking in your head that Jesus is Lord actually isn't good enough. Many will come to me in that day, Jesus says, and will say, didn't we call you Lord? Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these mighty works in your name? And I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you realize that going through confirmation and subscribing to a list of theological facts about Jesus, to read Philippians 2, 5 through 11 and say, okay, I can buy into that. Jesus is the preexistent Son of God. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death. Jesus rose from the dead. He did all this for me. I believe that in the future. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord that that's actually not the point of this. The point isn't good thoughts in your head. The point is much larger than that. Look, let me me set it up this way. Think about all the good theology that Paul does, and Paul does a dang lot of good theology. Think about Romans, which is his magnum opus, right? He unpacks, I mean, like I said, this is probably his masterpiece He unpacks in an incredible way the theological reality that all humans, Greeks and Jews, by Greeks he means people who aren't Jewish, all of them are sinners. He also goes on to unpack the reality that Greeks and Jews, through the redemption that is in the blood of Jesus Christ, can confess that Jesus is Lord and receive salvation from their sins. He talks about the new creation in Romans 8. He talks about election in Romans 9. What is his main point in Romans, though? It's this. It's to say because Jesus died for both Jews and non-Jews, both Jews and non-Jews can be united in the church of Jesus Christ. Romans 11, he says, Jews can be grafted into this tree which originally belonged to them. Romans 15, he unpacks all these Old Testament texts and says, look, the Gentiles are coming in. Think about Ephesians. He starts off Ephesians with Trinity, right? He starts off Ephesians with this great truth of the doctrine of election. How the Father chose you from before the foundation of the world. How to the praise of the glorious grace of Christ, Christ redeemed you. How the Holy Spirit is the down payment, the guarantee that you will get the full deal someday. Then he goes on in Ephesians 2 to describe how you guys can access this by faith alone. And is all this his main point? Frequently we make it his main point. We stop at Ephesians 2, but keep on going. He goes on to say that in Jesus Christ, the barrier between Jew and Greek, the socioeconomic, the ethnic barrier between Jew and Greek, has been blown up, so now the two can become one. And you, Gentiles, have been made co-heirs. with. And he goes on in Ephesians 4 to say, so live together in peace and unity in the one body of Jesus Christ. What is the point of the doctrine? The point of the doctrine is to create the community. Same thing in Romans, same thing in Ephesians. Think about 1 Corinthians 11. We Lutherans love to talk about 1 Corinthians 11 and the whole bit in there about communion and how Paul talks about when you take communion, you are sharing in the body and blood of the Lord. But is the point of that so that you can pass some sort of confirmation exam and say, I believe what Lutherans believe about communion. I hope that you believe what Lutherans believe about communion. But the point of 1 Corinthians 11 is to move on to 1 Corinthians 12 and say, because you come to the rail together, because you share in the body and blood of Christ together, you are all one body. You all share in the same confession of faith. You share in the same baptism. You share in the same body and blood. You share in the same Holy Spirit. So be united in the body of Christ. That's the point of Holy Communion. It's not an end in itself. It is the thing that binds us together in Jesus Christ himself so that we can go out from this place and be the community of God together. Think about Galatians. One more example, and then I'll move back to Philippians. Galatians 2, you're not saved by the works of the law. We as Protestants love this, right? You're not saved by the works of the law. You're saved by grace alone. Galatians 3, how does this work? Because you are all the seed of Abraham and Jesus Christ. And does Paul say, now because you believe this, and now because you can pass your confirmation exam, you're good to go. You're ready. You're a child of... No, he actually goes on and says, therefore, if you've been baptized into Christ, you are one body. And that means there's no Jew or Greek. It means there's no male or female. It means there's no slave or free. What is Paul doing with all that good theology? He's saying the good theology is good theology, but it's only good theology if it ends up looking like the body of Christ. If it ends up creating a community of people who share the name of Jesus who participate in life together, even though everything in culture says, no, no, men and women, you know, men, you'll never understand the women. and Just be separate. You have your own sort of different things. We do this with Bible studies. We divide up men and women Bible. And this is nothing wrong with this. As long as we understand, the main point of the gospel is to bind us together. We divide up young and old. You know, old people don't understand young people. Young people don't understand old people. No, actually the main point of the body of Christ is that we are all united together. Rich people and poor people, you know, just kind of live in two different worlds. No, the main point of the truth of the body of Christ is that we're all together. Slave, free. Is, all of this is done away within the body of Christ. And this is what the gospel does. Okay, now let's go back to Philippians 2. Now I'm going to have to dig around and find my text again because I just knocked it shut. Paul is doing the exact same thing here. It's about Jesus. Jesus is at the heart of it. But the point of it being about Jesus is the creation of this new community. Let me read to you from Philippians 2. Now, we started our, our reading starts in verse 5. I'm going to go back to Philippians 2.1. Therefore, if you have you guys, he uses the plural you there, if you guys have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you guys have any comfort from his love, if you have any common sharing in the Spirit, see what he's doing here? If, if what's happening here in Jesus is creating any sort of relationship, this common sharing in the Spirit, this mutual community of love. If this is happening, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do not act as individual free agents. I no longer belong to myself. I belong to Jesus, which is just as good as saying I belong to you guys because you are the body of Christ. You are the manifestation of Jesus here on earth. I'm no longer to do, I'm no, no longer allowed to do strictly what I want to do. And I'm going to run you guys over to do what I want to do. I have to live for you guys. And you guys have to live for each other and for me. And we all live together in the body of Christ because that's what Jesus does. Moving on here. Don't look, don't, it, it, rather in humility, Paul says, value others above yourselves. Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes along to do what we just did a few minutes ago and explain who Jesus is. But the point isn't so that you know facts about Jesus. The point is, it's that so you and I believing these facts about Jesus flushes itself out in our lives so that we become this community of like-minded people, unified people, not self-loving people, but other loving people, building up the body of Christ. That's the goal. That's the goal. Some of you have experienced disenchantment with church. You've walked away. There are some of us who used to be here who have walked away because this just isn't, it's just, you know, I, I grew up going to church and it's just, I, I just don't, it's, you know, frustrating. I don't know what's going on there. I don't don't know if I believe that stuff anymore. There's a lot of talk and not a whole lot of action. These sorts of things. I feel, another way that it pays out is I feel lonely I feel like I, you know, I go to church and I hear a sermon and we sing some songs and I get communion and I don't feel like I really know anybody. Why from whence cometh this deep frustration with church? Is it not from the fact that we have shortchanged this? Is it not from the fact that we have taught ourselves that the point of this is knowing good doctrine? But it's actually, we've never actually let Paul do to us what he's trying to do to the Philippians, which is turn that good doctrine into communal living into the body of Christ living and breathing here in Glen Carbon. And so it feels empty. It feels, it's, it's like the kid in math class. You know, he's in Algebra 2 and he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this someday. That's how a lot of you feel in church sometimes. Okay, I'm, I'm talking to people who are here. So obviously you've continued to go. And a lot of times it's like, well, I'm going to go because I, I know it's the right thing to do, but I actually feel like this, like I felt about Algebra 2 or Geometry. I'll do it. The law says I have to do it, but... I don't really know what this has to do with my real life. If that's how you feel about church, and I'll confess to you that I felt that way about church a lot of times, it's because I've tried to understand who Jesus is, but I've not let that understanding of Jesus create in me the heart for the community of God that's supposed to exist, whether it's in from the book of Romans or 1 Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians 2, 5 through 11. How does this create the community of God? It does it two ways. What we just talked about, it does it two ways. One way is it sets up Jesus as our example. Be like Jesus. Jesus didn't consider power something to be grasped at. He let it go, and he took upon himself the form of a servant. Go and do likewise. This is good. We should be like Jesus. The only problem, though, that which you guys know, is that it's almost impossible to give up your desire for power or control over your life. It's almost impossible to want what's best for others over what's best for yourself. So really, the second way is going to be the way that actually empowers us. And it comes at the end of verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Connected to Jesus, this belongs to you already. You belong to Jesus, and so this mindset, this family of God, this Jesus is yours already. You already have it. Okay, how does that work? How does already having Jesus create in us the community? So like I said, hang with me just for a second here. Like I said, this is a story. It's a story about Jesus, but it's also a meta narrative. A meta narrative is a fancy word for a story that claims to be the capital S story. The story that's behind every other story. The story that's behind your own story, the story of your life. The pre-existent God becomes human to die for our sins so that he can be the Lord of the universe. And if that is the true meta narrative, and I believe that it is, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, where do I fall in this story? What's my role in this story? And think about it for just a second. What is your role in the story of Philippians 2, 6 through 11? I think it's real clear that, God willing, we're in that group of people in verses 10 and 11 who are kneeling before Jesus, The story isn't really about us. It's about Jesus, right? But we get to be extras in the story. We get to be a part of that massive crowd from every tribe, tongue, and nation kneeling before Jesus, confessing that he is Lord. What are you doing as you confess that he's Lord? Think about it. There's two things going on here. First of all, it's oriented towards Jesus. What you're saying is that I no longer am Lord. I don't, whatever little tiny power I have, I'm done grasping at it. And now I confess that Jesus is Lord, so it's oriented towards Jesus. Think of it this way. You're going to, most of you, a lot of you are going to come to the rail in a few minutes. When you come here, what are you doing? You're confessing that Jesus is Lord. We are oriented towards Jesus. But the second thing that's happening, Look, look what's happening to you. You are kneeling shoulder to shoulder with everybody else in the church. Even people you don't know. We, every single human being, someday will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus, at the end of this text, is creating community (laughs) by his humility, by his suffering and death, by his resurrection, by his exaltation, which he gets because he suffered and died. He's creating a group of people who worship him. Whether you realize it or not, you've been pulled into this body of Christ and now you belong to the body of Christ how can I have any beef with you when I'm about to kneel shoulder to shoulder with you before the throne of Jesus? How can I not want to invite you into my home and share food with you when I'm going to kneel shoulder to shoulder with you before the throne of Jesus, not just now, but for all eternity? How can I not want to be a part of your life? When what we're doing here, when we kneel shoulder to shoulder, when we become the community that God's called us to be, is we are confessing to each other, to ourselves, to Glenn Carbon, to the whole world, that Jesus is Lord. Amen.